Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet and Jacqueline Masters, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 67, where we're talking about books featuring working class stories. Hello, you two. Welcome. Hi. Hello. <laughs> it's good to be here. Yes, we're very excited. This is another three person podcast. Say that five <laughs> times fast. <laughs> And it's Reading Women Month, which is also really cool. Happy birthday. Yes, happy birthday. Happy birthday to us. For three years of podcasting, it's, it's kind of hard That's to That's quite believe. an achievement. They grow up so fast. <laughs> well, I'm pretty excited. We have lots going on for Reading Women Month. And if you're joining us for the first Reading Women Month for you ever. Uh, Reading Women Month is sort of like our month-long birthday celebration. Uh, And this year we have something new. We have Reading Women Month Bingo. It's like a month-long readathon and we give you a bingo board with prompts and you try to get five in a row and then you win, which is cool. I like winning things. That's (laughs) fun. Well, there's several prompts that overlap with themes for the Reading Women Challenge. So if you're participating in that, then you can do double duty and stack up on that. But the graphic is already on our Instagram grid, so you can just hop over and check that out. And you've probably already seen us talking about it at this point. (laughs) Yes. And Autumn, you've been working on some new merch for us. I have. So we are partnering with Bonfire to do a special limited edition run of t-shirts. And so t-shirts is something that has been requested by our listeners for a while. And we could just never figure out how to make it work logistically. Um, And so we're partnering with Bonfire to do these really soft, really cute t-shirts with our tagline on it. And you can get one of those for yourself. And we will have photos of them in the show notes and they're already all over our Instagram. So we're super excited about that. Yes. And on top of that, we'll be having giveaways every weekend and we'll be having giveaways in a few different places. So you'll want to follow us across social media. And we also have a 10% off coupon if you sign up for the newsletter. And then we also have some special goodies for our patrons over on our Patreon page. So we'll be having like parties across the Booktornet celebrating, which is pretty exciting. And so for our patrons, we will be giving them a 15% off discount to our store. And if you sign up as a patron this month, you too will be able to get in on that discount. So be sure to check that out as well. Yes. So we will have a link in our show notes to the Reading Women Month 2019 page. So you can just go check out all of the information we just mentioned and probably a little more over there. And you will have it all in one place for you to check out for yourself. So before we get into the news news, we do have a special announcement about our Patreon. Now, most of you know that we have been running a campaign to try to raise more money per month so that we can have transcriptions for the podcast so we can make it more accessible because right now, right now, because transcription can be very expensive, we haven't been doing that, but it was very important for us to try to make the podcast accessible. So we have now reached our goal and starting today with this episode, you will have transcriptions for all of our podcast episodes. 
and uh, it's just so exciting. <laughs> that is very exciting, and it's, it is so important that people can can access the episodes, no matter how they want to um, join in. Yeah, we're just very thrilled that we'll be able to make the podcast more accessible to everyone. And uh, you can follow a link in our show notes if you're on a podcatcher, and we will have the transcription embedded in the show notes on our website at readingwomenpodcast.com, and you can go there and find them. Uh, so now, going forward, we will have those for you. And then, Jacqueline, I think you have some updates for us on the Stella winners. Yeah, so if you were listening to our Australia episode that we did earlier in the year, um, we mentioned the Stella Prize, which is a big uh, literary prize in Australia. And a few of the books that we mentioned in that that were uh, shortlisted books are actually coming out in the US. So the winner, The Erratics by Vicky Laveau Harvey, is actually coming out by Knopf. And Axiomatic by Maria Timarkin is coming out from Transit Books. And Pink Mountain on Locust Island uh, by Jamie Marina Lau is coming out from Coffee House Press. So, yeah, if you liked the sound of any of those books that were on the Stella shortlist, um, you'll be able to find them in the US later this year, which is really exciting. Very, I'm very excited. I've been hearing you talk about them and... That means all of these will be up for the Reading Win Award probably in 2020-ish. So <laughs> I am preparing. I'm very happy that publishers are almost like they heard us and they're taking us up. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to think that. <laughs> that uh, well, what was it, two years ago that we reviewed The Strays by yeah. Bido, Something like that. So yeah. And we were lamenting then, like, why are they not being published here? But Well, especially the winner. Like, I couldn't believe that the winner was so hard for people to get hold of. And we've been tweeting them for weeks and getting radio silence. So maybe this is why. Maybe they just couldn't announce it yet. <laughs> well, it was very exciting when the Museum of Modern Love, which won in 2017, arrived uh, at my house. It was published last November by Algonquin. So we are a little bit behind. I feel like we're just going to have like a year or two delay on these. That's fine. Mm. I'll be patient. Better late than never. <laughs> but that's it. Yeah. So uh, the theme, guys. Yeah. So why don't we talk a little about why we decided to pick working class stories for Reading Women Month? We always try to pick something for Reading Women Month that is something that is personal to us and something that we care about. And it's host choice, so, you know, that too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's very important to us while we are expanding the women that we're talking about that we always have, you know, the special place in our heart for where we came from and the, the topics around that. And I hadn't seen many people talk about class generally speaking, around women's writing very much. And so I, we thought that this would be a great opportunity. So I think that for me, I don't think I realized that class was a thing until I became an adult because there is, and Jacqueline, I'd be interested in your perspective on this not being an American, but um, as an American, we tell ourselves that there is no such thing as class. You know, there's rich people and there's poor people. And if you just like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you too can become the next Bill Gates. Yeah. And like, I just don't think that's true. Um, for a lot of reasons, but I hear my own relatives and things say stuff like that and people that I'm in contact with frequently. And it's just crazy to me, like how prevalent that is in our society. Yeah, I think class is something I probably became aware of 
a little bit earlier because I grew up in the north of England and there's a big divide between the north and the south and it's largely class-based. Um, and then again, when I moved to Australia when I was in high school, you know, when I was looking at like university and scholarships and things like that, like class and being from an underrepresented like economic group is a one of the ways that uh, a lot of people can go to university um, on a scholarship. So uh, that's something that I just sort of became aware of um, like that way. A book we're, we're not talking about today is called Squeezed, and it's about the disappearing middle class in America. And she's talking a lot about like the educated poor, how people with PhDs don't have enough money, you know, to stay in the middle class and just a lot of complications. And that's some of the things we're going to talk about today about the stereotypes around what it's like to be a working class person and uh, all the different facets that we're going to approach it from. And we have a lot of different writers who are approaching this. And um, also, I believe, Jacqueline, you have something on the stereotypes of who is working class versus who is work middle class as well so and I think your first Kendra so just take it away so the first book that I, I really wanted to start this discussion with is a very broad brushstroke here um, and that is Appalachian Reckoning a region response to hillbilly elegy and this is edited by Anthony Harkins and Meredith McCarroll and this is out from West Virginia University Press and this is an anthology, meaning a bunch of different writers contributed to this book. It includes essays, both academic and personal, uh, and also photo essays and poetry. And all of these different authors are responding to Hillbilly Elegy. And you guys know how we feel about Hillbilly Elegy <laughs> of all the podcast. We interviewed Elizabeth Cat. I will link that down in the show notes. And she gave us kind of like an intro to why we have problems with it. So definitely go check that out. I'm not going to rehash that here. But one of the things that the editors of this collection wanted to do was to illustrate um, the diversity in uh, Appalachia. Appalachia is made up of counties across 12 states. There's 20 to 25 million people. Uh, it is bigger than the majority of countries in Europe. Uh, it would be the 10th largest country if it were a country in Europe. So that gives you a little bit of perspective of how big it is. So interestingly, because Kendra and I are both from Appalachia, we decided to add it to this year's Reading Women Challenge. And we've been really surprised by how many people have really just struggled with this prompt or like didn't quite understand that it was a thing or thought that maybe Appalachia equaled the South when there's actually a lot of it is in Pennsylvania and things like that. So I think that this collection is really interesting because it just shows the wide range of perspectives. Yeah. And there are people of all different walks of life, uh, different races, ethnicities, uh, and, you know, sexualities are all represented in this anthology, which I think is incredibly important because I feel like people have a very specific idea of what Appalachia looks like, specifically white working class people. Since we're talking about class today in particular, I wanted to feature an essay by Lisa R. Pruitt, which is called What Hillbilly Elegy Reels About Race in the 21st Century America. And if you have questions about this essay as I'm talking about it, I would highly recommend going and reading it because she has citations everywhere. So you'll have all all of these resources. Uh, but she talks about how people conflate race with class and how problematic that is and how it illustrates another type of racism. Um, so she says here, critical race scholars in particular are prone to elevate the power of white skin and as a complement to that elevation, diminish the significance of class disadvantage. 
in this context class signals white working class because African Americans and the Latinx community are presumptively working class, their socioeconomic disadvantage conflated with their racial status. And I think this is important because classism exists, you know, by itself. And I think it's, you can see that with white working class people, but when you're also a person of color and working class, that just complicates the issue. But saying that people of color are inherently poor is racist and how that manifests itself. And so I think that this essay is just one example of all the complexities in this essay collection. I have like every page underlined. I had to edit out so many page turnings, guys. Like (laughs) I I have book darts and underlines and everything. Um, But I think that's a perspective I hadn't heard of. And it took someone from a working class background to write it. My my mind is just running circles. I haven't had the chance to read this collection yet, and I really need to buy it. I was going to say, it sounds like one I'm adding to my TBR. <laughs> Thanks, Kendra. <laughs> it, anytime. Um, it is very, very good. And together, and in particular, the way class is viewed and white working class, this is definitely what we needed instead of hillbilly elegy. Uh, yeah. We're just we're just gonna keep talking about it until yeah. it all dies down after the yeah. movie comes out. Yeah, there's a movie. Oh, Ron Howard. No. Ron Howard's making it. <gasps> Amy Adams is in it. Oh yeah. gosh. Oh, oh no. I'm no. just trying to gird up my loins <laughs> and prepare. <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> Um, well, anyway, obviously I could talk about this book forever, but I won't, I will spare everyone so they don't like fall asleep, me gushing about this book. Um, but this is Appalachian Reckoning, a region response to Hillbilly Elegy, edited by Anthony Harkins and Meredith McCarroll. It's out from West Virginia University Press. The press is also great. I'm just going to link all the things down in the show notes so you will have all the resources you, you could ever want. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm done talking now, I promise. Jacqueline, I think you have the next one. I do. So the next book is a bit of a creative spin on the the class theme, and it was looking at class from, I guess, a perspective that hasn't traditionally been um, written in literature. And it's a play by an Indigenous Australian author, and it's called Black is the New White by Nakia Louie. And it came out in February this year from Allen and Unwin in Australia. I don't believe it's been published in the US, but I have seen it on Book Depository. So if you are interested in reading it, I would check that out. Um, So this one's a play that really looks at what it means to be both Aboriginal and middle class. And it does it in a really fun meet the parents Christmas story. So it's a very dramatic story. so the story follows a, a young Indigenous woman, Charlotte, and she brings her white fiancé, Frances, uh, home to meet her parents for Christmas. And on top of that, if that wasn't enough drama, we also have his parents meeting her parents at the same function. So um, it's a very uh, charged scenario. <laughs> and as well as that, there's lots of issues that come up through the course of it because Charlotte's having a bit of a, a crisis of career. She's looking to do some further study. And each of the fathers, Charlotte and Francis's fathers, are very prominent uh, political or or social commentators. Uh, So there's a lot of inherent tensions that way. So I guess where the play all started was uh, the author wanted to write about love. And she came across a statistic that 
uh, 74% of Aboriginal people that get married do so to non-Aboriginal people. And part of her own experience writing this play was she fell in love with a, a white man while she was writing it and became engaged over the course of writing it. And she realised she was one of these 74% of people. Um, so she wanted to look at how her own family had changed over the last two decades and how it had changed their definition of class. And um, she had a particular focus on how that intersected with um, her and her family's identity culturally and racially. So she also interrogates a lot of what it means to have that privilege um, as an Indigenous person and, you know, the, the kind of power that comes with that. So I think what a lot of what she was trying to do with this play and what she talks about in her author's note at the, the start of the play is that she really wanted to portray an Aboriginal family that she hadn't seen on screen before or in any other kind of Australian um, artistic work. Was it was it actually performed on the stage before? Yeah, so I think it, it's been performed before because at the back of the book there's a cast of like which actors played the role. And I also think it might be being re-performed in Melbourne later this year because I've seen a few people on social media mentioning that they read it and loved it and have seen that, you know, it's going to be coming to life later in the year. So I think that's a really fun way to to look at such a, a politically charged issue with such a, a relatable story because I think it's sort of a, a situation that a lot of readers would be able to relate to um, and she's doing it in a really creative way. So that is Black is the New White by Nakia Louie and it is out in Australia from Alan and Unwin. So Autumn, I think you've got the next book that we'll be talking about. Yes, so I have Where the Line Bleeds by Jasmine Ward, and this has been recently republished by Scribner. And crazily enough, this book is now 10 years old. <laughs> and in preparation for this episode, I was watching a video of Jasmine Ward at a book conference when it came out in 2009. And it's just, I couldn't help but think as I was watching her, you have no idea what's about to come into your life. Like, oh my goodness. Anyway, so Where the Line Bleeds is the story. So it is Jessamyn Ward's first novel. I don't think I actually said that. So, And it is set in the fictional town of Bois Sauvage, Mississippi, on the Gulf Coast. And it is the story of two brothers, Joshua and Christoph. And they're not just brothers, but they're twins. And they are being raised by their blind grandmother, in rural Mississippi, right along the coast. And we are first introduced to the the twins the day that they graduate from high school. And then we follow them from there. And I love the new cover. It's one of those, uh, I don't know, there's a word for it, but I can't remember. You know where it's like you look at a vase and you can see two different things. So it's like the two boys in profile with like a river running through it. And the river is a really important theme in this book, but also it kind of, because the boys live in such a rural area, the book kind of unpacks why they make the decisions that they make. And because they're twins, we get to see two different paths because I think it's really easy for anybody reading the news about any topic to say, Oh, well they could just make a different decision. And then they wouldn't be in the situation 
And I think that the story really complicates that narrative in the sense that the boys started out on the same path at the same place. You know, they're twins, so they're the exact same age. And they there aren't many jobs because it's not a big town. It's a small town. They don't own a car. They have, I think they have one bicycle, I don't remember, but they walk most of everywhere that they go. And most of the jobs are down by the docks, so working on, like, shrimp boats or fishing boats. But then a lot of their friends have started, who graduated with them a couple years, well, who were in high school with them or who graduated with them a couple years before that, a lot of them are now dealing in drugs. She really paints this complex picture of, like, why they made the decisions that they made and really kind of muddies the water, as it were, about whether or not they had any other choice than the choices that they made. Yeah, and it's almost like it's one of those alternative reality stories because since they're twins, it's like one got a job and one didn't, and so it tells their parallel stories almost of like what could happen to the same person depending on like the cards that they're dealt. And I found that very interesting how that worked within the narrative. Yeah, definitely. And we find out, too, that their mom left and moved to Atlanta shortly after the the twins were, I don't think they were quite 10 yet, but so they were still very young when she moved to Atlanta. And she moved to Atlanta so that way she could have more opportunities and make more money. And she left them with her grandmother to raise them because of the family connection, the community, and lots of different reasons. And so there's a line in the book where it talks about how the money she sends them every month, like they see more of that than they do of her and how like that helps them out. So it's really, it's really complex and really nuanced. And for those who've read Salvage the Bones, there's actually actually an Easter egg of a character who is in Salvage the Bones. So that was kind of fun as well to see. Yeah. And you know, that character is in all three of the Bois Sauvage trilogy. Oh, that's right. I totally forgot. Mm-hmm. I just remember Singing Buried, Sing as well. Yeah. They're like, they're just all in the same universe. They're not like, they're all independent novels. They're just connected loosely. It's, it's clever like that, how you can read them separately, because I'm reading them out of order, obviously. I read Sing Unburied Sing first, so I find it really clever that she can write these three different books that work so well in harmony together as well. Oh, definitely. It's very clever. I was researching things as I was, you know, you we were prepping for this book, and I was thinking, oh, each of the books that I've read so far have like retold like classic mythology. I wonder what's in here. And, you know, I actually don't know much about the story of Castor and Pollux and different things like twins. So uh, definitely something that I think it's a book you can return to and mm-hmm. see, you know, more depth to it. Yeah, and we can talk about this more in the discussion episode, but twins is such a age-old kind of way to set up a story and I think she even nods to that in the epilogue a little bit yeah if you've read Sing Unburied Sing and Salvage the Bones definitely don't overlook where the line bleeds like I said it is now has recently been republished by Scribner and all the covers match and they're beautiful and I have all them (laughs) because I rebought them (laughs) and so that is Where the Line Bleeds by Jessamyn Ward And we'll be back with more books featuring working class stories after a word from our sponsor. 
So then, Kendra, you have the next pick. All right. So as soon as I saw this book, I I felt like it had my name written all over it. And that's Heartland, A Memoir of Working Hard and Being Broke in the Richest Country on Earth by Sarah Schmarsh. And this was shortlisted for the National Book Award for Nonfiction. And that's really rare for a memoir because both really academic nonfiction and memoirs kind of fight it out in the same category. And if you know anything about both of those, you know, they're very different. Uh, And so I even heard like a lot of the judges say, well, we prefer the more academic because the level of difficulty seems higher. But I feel like if a memoir makes it that far, that it has to be really good, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, So this book is about Sarah Schmarsh and her life. She chronicles her life as a working class person. And she also looks at the cycles of poverty as represented by her grandmother and then her mother and then herself and what that looks like. And I feel like this does for Kansas and the plains of the United States what hillbillyology should have done but didn't. And, oh, oh my goodness, guys. Like, wasn't this book, like, you just you just can't even. It's just so good. <laughs> I think it does strike a nice balance between being very well-researched and very thorough, but also adding in that personal experience piece. Yeah, the personal stuff, was I found it fascinating. And I listened to it as an audiobook, and she narrates it herself. And, yeah, it was it was really, really powerful to read. I loved how she was able to talk about the challenges of being a working class person and the disadvantage that one has when you are a working class person. But she also recognizes the complications of, well, an African-American person in her same position would have it even more difficult because they have that additional disadvantage of the right systematic racism in our country and how how their lives might have even been different. And she kind of charts that with each generation of our family, like, well, there was this legislation about civil rights around this time, you know, and so she kind of like checks in with you and reminds you like, yes, we had it very difficult, but we were had the privilege of our race on, on that. So I felt like she struck that perfect balance of giving respect where respect is due, but also just talking about her own challenges and her family. Yeah, it's very intersectional, which I think is essential. I mean, there's no other way around it. Also, I appreciate her discussion about how the work that families like her family does are so important, is so important, but also how it's like super underappreciated. I I live in Atlanta and there's a lot of talk about where does your food come from kind of a thing. And it's kind of cool for people to talk about. And, but there's not really discussion about the family, I don't know, it's just not part of, like, this larger discourse in our country of, like, where does our food come from? You know, it doesn't just materialize out of nowhere. So I appreciated that discussion as well. And I, I felt a kinship with it because, you know, Appalachia is notoriously ignored, but, you know, she lives in a quote-unquote flyover state, uh, and that's equally mm-hmm. as ignored and definitely connected with it and what that looked like and... Yeah, I mean, she just does such a great job, which is why it's our our second discussion book for uh, this theme. So we're going to be coming back to it and uh, talking about it, which is really exciting. Uh, So that was Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth by Sarah Schmarsh. And that's out from Scrivener. And Jacqueline, you have the next one. 
Yeah, so I'm going to be talking about Ghost War by Sarah Moss, and that came out in the US in January this year by FSG. I believe it's been out in the UK a little bit before that, though, so if you're an international reader, you may have already read it before then. Um, But I was really drawn to this book because it's one of the first books I read that was set in the geographic region where I grew up, and it's, it's set in Northumberland in the UK, which is the northeast of the country, just under the Scottish border. And this one is like bursting with so many different issues, um, as well as class. There are discussions about gender and feminism, domestic violence. But yeah, for purposes of what we're talking about today, I really wanted to focus on what it does with class and particularly that north-south divide that is really prevalent in the UK and is perhaps even more prevalent with the way that things are going with Brexit and everything like that. Um, so in this one, we're following the story of a, a young girl, Sylvie, and and her parents. And they're going through a, I guess you'd call it an experimental archaeology um, reenactment that her father has um, signed them all up for. And, you know, as well as their experience, we're also getting uh, the experience of the professor and his university students that are in this class. And I guess the purpose of the class is to reenact the experience of people that were living during the Iron Age. So they're eating food and wearing clothes and sleeping in places that, you know, people in that era would have lived in. So many of the discussions that come up between the family, like Sylvie and her father particularly, and these students are very demarcated along class lines and even just down to the discussions of history and this idea that you need to be educated to experience and appreciate history um, is a really fascinating one that I think you know really grabbed my attention when I was reading it and comments particularly from the university students about um, people not understanding history properly when they didn't have that educational background to kind of situate it. So I found the students read as, as very intellectual and a little out of touch with um, the way that Sylvie's family were experiencing this reenactment and just their way of approaching history. And some of those discussions really surface when they're looking at this definition of what makes up the original people in Britain and there's this tension between, you know, are people, is, is there even an original category of people that were in Britain or is everyone an immigrant of some description? And and there's a whole lot of other things that come up with Sylvie's relationship with her father, um, which, which does have some grounding in class, but, I mean, there's a whole myriad of other factors at play that I won't really go into because I think it would spoil a lot of the plot. Um, yeah, I, I really found that, you know, since this is basically a novella, it's a very short novel, I, I found it interesting how the author plays with systematic patriarchal like, norms and how that relates to class and how we as a society have an assumption about who or who would be more patriarchal, the working class man or the intellectual upper class man. But really, ultimately, I think she kind of has a baseline of patriarchy mm-hmm. is, is still patriarchy and it's going to come out. You know, you can think that you're better because you're an upper class, but that might not necessarily be true. And I'm really dancing around spoilers. So, (laughs) yeah, it's a hard one, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, because it is so short. You almost, it's like spoilers everywhere. I also think it's interesting, too, since, you know, my, my husband is in academia, and so I know a lot of academics. And, 
he had a discussion with a friend the other day talking about literacy and what literacy actually means. And, you know, Sylvie's dad, to something you were saying earlier, Jacqueline, you know, Sylvie's dad knows all this stuff about history and stuff like that, but he's also a bus driver. He's more literate than the academics in the story, but he wouldn't necessarily be perceived that way by any of his passengers or anything like that, which I think is a really interesting part of this this story as well, because there's different types of literacy. It's not just like, oh, well, I have a PhD from Cambridge or whatever, you know. I think we're going to get into that more when we talk about Sarah Marsh's book about the assumption of the difference between working with your hands versus working with your mind in that as well. I think that's a huge part of themes when you look at working class people of that assumption. So that was Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss, and it's out now from FSG here in the US. And Autumn, I believe you've got the next book that we're going to be talking about. So the last pick that I have is The Affairs of the Falcons, and this book is by Melissa Rivero, and it came out just about a month ago, I guess two months ago, in April, by Echo Books. This was a book that really surprised me by like how much I I really enjoyed it. So it follows the protagonist, Anna Falcon, and her husband, Lucho, and their two young children. They decide to uproot their family from Peru and leave their family and come to America in hopes of having a safer, more secure life. And so they are living in New York City in around 1990. And the title, I think, is super clever because... Affairs means just like the day-to-day things that they're doing, but also there are some interpersonal and family dynamics and some actual marital affairs that happen along the way. So it kind of has two different meanings, which once I realized that, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so brilliant. It it shows a different kind of working class, and this is like an immigrant sort of working class. So Anna works in a factory in New York where she's paid very little to do a lot of work and sit all day long. And as far as class goes, Anna and her husband, Lucho, have a lot of discussions about where they live. They're living with his family and they want to get a place of their own, but also they have to have a certain amount of money to have a down payment, you know, to pay it in advance, like two months rent. But because they don't have papers, they can't get a bank account. And because they don't have a bank account, they have to go talk to a loan shark because they're talking to a loan shark. And so it just kind of shows the snowball effect of how if you're disadvantaged in one way, how it spirals out into all different other areas of your life and how it is really like a cycle that you can't get out of. Because in order to get a better in order to get a place of their own and an address of their own, they have to borrow more money from the loan shark, which, you know, then they had to like turn over the deed for their property in Peru. And, you know, it's just like so cause and effect. And I feel like it, I feel like she portrayed that so clearly and so realistically. And I won't spoil the ending, but yeah, it was just a great read. I'm just going to (laughs) summarize it that way. I've seen so much buzz for this book online too. I think it's one that a lot of people have been excited to read. Yeah, and it's not what I expected. I don't really know what I expected, but I think I read the description and had one image in mind, but it wasn't what I thought. I think especially because this book shows the sacrifices that people have to make, because I think also in America, 
you know, immigrants are seen as a lower class. But seeing how American society is structured for people in power was just really good. And like the barriers to entry and things like that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, even living in, I live in a bigger city now, and I didn't realize how having a permanent address is so important to so many things in the world. (laughs) And if you don't have your own permanent address, like, that's a huge barrier for people. So she really kind of shows in this book, like, the uh, behind-the-scenes look of, like, the struggles and the sacrifices that you have to make and the really hard decisions that immigrants in particular have to make. And there's even a discussion in the book about whether or not they should go back to Peru. And so it's just very complex and very in a good way and, like, very nuanced. And I think that she shows really well, like, the struggles of being an immigrant in America. It sounds really good. <laughs> and this is her debut novel, too, which I think is just always astounding. <laughs> ah, I didn't know that. So that is The Affairs of the Falcons by Melissa Rivero, published by Echo Books. And that's our six picks for our month on class and so now it's on to currently reading so Jacqueline uh, what are you currently reading I am currently reading a YA fantasy which is very different for me but it's the second book in a series and I love the first book and I'm loving this one so far and it's The Missing of Claire de Lune by Christelle Darbos and it's translated from French by Hildegard Searle and that is out from Europa Editions and it's really hard to talk about because it is the second book in a series so I don't want to spoil the series but um, yeah it's it's a fantasy one that's essentially following a young girl who... um, she can read objects with her hands and she can travel short distances between mirrors and she's sort of put in this new world where she's marrying into a very political family. So that's, I'll give you that. <laughs> Without, that's no, no spoilers. <laughs> and what are you reading, Autumn? I just started today, actually, Black is the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time and Mine by Emily Bernard. And I'm only one essay into this essay collection, and I already know that it's going to blow my mind. Oh, wow. um, (laughs) Yeah. That was one of your most anticipated books. Yes. And so this book was published by Knopf earlier this year, and it was on my most anticipated reads of the year. And here it is June, and I'm just now getting around to it. Um, But I'm really excited to finish this book. And then what are you reading, Kendra? I'm reading An Unrestored Woman by Shobaral, uh, which Samaya recommended. And it's about the partition of India and it's a short story collection about different women during that time. But she also wrote Girls Burn Brighter, which I feel like if you know the themes and, and the types of women's stories that she writes and, and wants to highlight, that that would be something to be aware of. But I've heard it's excellent. And honestly, I haven't heard about many books that are available, readily available in America that are about the partition of India. So I'm very excited for this book. And yeah, it's out from Flatiron. Her debut novel, Girls Burn Brighter, came out, I believe, last year from Flatiron, which I've also heard great things about. So I'm going to read them both um, in preparation for our next theme, which we'll announce in the discussion episode. But all right. Well, that's our show. 
If you haven't yet, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice. And thanks to all of you who have already done that. Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. To subscribe to our newsletter or to learn more about becoming one of our patrons, please visit readingwomenpodcast.com. Also, you can find Reading Women Month at our website as well. So that's very important for this month as well. And be sure to join us next time for our discussion about Where the Line Bleeds by Jasmine Ward and Heartland by Sarah Smarsh. And in the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at KD Winchester, Autumn at Autumn Privet, and me at Six Minutes for Me. And thank you for listening to The Reading Women. 